From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations from previous episodes. On today's program, we'll first hear from Dr. Joel Stallman, an Indigenous anthropologist and member of the Seneca Nation. Joe helps us understand the complicated history surrounding the doctrine of discovery. Next, we have a conversation with playwright Annette Daniels-Taylor about some of the local history that has inspired her work. And afterwards, Damon Young and Madge Whiskey join us to share their memories of the generous spirit that was Pearl Young. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez, and thank you for joining us. In late March, the Vatican and Pope Francis announced that they would be formally repudiating the doctrine of discovery. This was a series of 500-year-old papal decrees that helped legitimize colonialism in the Western Hemisphere and the seizure of indigenous lands. Dr. Joe Stallman, an anthropologist and outspoken member of the Seneca Nation, came on our program to help explain what it could possibly mean for the indigenous peoples in the area. The Doctrine of Discovery. Yes, let's, sir. Let's go into the terms a little bit here to start the Doctrine of Discovery. Tell me. Yeah, so that's really a translation, right? from uh, Latin to English. But it is. It's, uh, it's really a mandate from the Roman Catholic Church in 1493 saying that this imaginary line west of the uh, Azores and Cape Verde was now uh, under the uh, exclusive control of Spain. Pope Alexander made this decree, and he made this determination. And based on this decree... It gave them exclusive rights to land ownership, uh, control over people's souls. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really a devastating thing. It it altered uh, life as we know it. And so for me, it's really an interesting moment because we had um, someone on the other side of the world that we never encountered impose this decree that... And had no idea of the indigenous people that were on the other side of the world. They didn't even know there was an other side of the world in 1493. We're just starting to discover that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that in itself is a complicated story, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think in 1493 they thought they were going to go off the edge of the world at that point. But they thought the world was a little bit smaller in circumference. Sure, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But from a legal, philosophical standpoint, it encouraged and gave... a. A license to commit genocide, Mm -hmm. uh, impose uh, cultural norms on other peoples. It it, uh, determine uh, who has rights to life that still affects us now. Uh, Being an indigenous person, you know, uh, our connections to life, uh, we see everything having a, a life force of its own. And so trees have a life force and the grasses and the fruits and the birds, you know, everything has souls and its own life forms. And so we have this decree where this uh, one person said that all of these other persons had dominion over all life. And so from that moment forward, we see this interesting march and in how we have all of these different philosophies that are actually fed into this concept that came from the other side of the world. It's really a heavy thing to yeah. me. Right? Yeah, and it, you know, it, I, I like the way you framed that about how there's that indigenous view, like you said, the trees, mm-hmm. the water, mm-hmm. the birds are all just as important. And yeah, now there's this, again, decree from 
somewhere across the world that is going to have centuries of impact on people yeah. and, with, like you said, still is felt today. 530 years, right? You know, I started thinking about it legally, Jay. Yeah. Like, what does this mean legally? And so, you know, when talking to your producer on the phone, I was like, you know, this is a lot of speculation going into this talk with you today. Yes. And he said, that's fine. And I'm a dreamer and we can go down that route politically. Uh, what the decree, this repudiation does for us, it creates a third space where we get to talk about this again and we get to renegotiate uh, what does that mean to everything that's happened in the last 530 years. And trust me, indigenous peoples are very intelligent and very savvy. And uh, a lot of folks are probably already all over this thinking about court cases and uh, how do we inhabit this third space to begin talking about the past. And I can take this down uh, a lot of fantasies and talk about things. But I also think it's really important right now to think about what your governments can do. And I'm, what I mean by your governments, I mean your state governments, your federal governments, not only here in the United States, but over in Canada as well. Because now we have this repudiation from one of the largest and strongest religious institutions in the world saying, hey, we're so sorry. Uh, we seek forgiveness. And so as a result of this, all of your riches and all of your successes has a culture and has a country and has a state comes from our dispossession of those rights. And so this becomes an, a prime and a, an awesome opportunity for your governments to come forward and say, not by the letter of the law, but from the, the, the well-meaning of our hearts to come to you and seek uh, how can we begin to repair some of this? I like the idea of, of, of conversation. And you've used the word, you know, I think, imagination and, and maybe fantasy before about mm -hmm. it. Speculation. How, how can, so let's speculate then. How can this conversation look? What can come of it? What, what do you think about that? So uh, this is fact-based. So... Uh, what could come out of it is, uh, did you notice in the news around January, New York State uh, helped return 1,000 acres to the Onondaga? It, I believe it was maybe Honeywell or one of those mm -hmm. types of corporations. Okay. Uh, they had to remediate some land, and uh, New York State uh, helped facilitate that transfer of 1,000 acres back to the Onondaga. Okay. And that was a reconciliation. That was a peaceful moment. That was a moment where you saw two entities who are uh, been historically like within some kind of uh, battle or some kind of uh, friction, right? Where you saw them come together, and there was there was a healing moment. And I, uh, for me, I still uh, in my in my day to day jobs, you know, I do talk to Onondaga representatives. Uh, that was really. Uh, a moment that really gave them a boost when they needed it, you know, and it really has improved working relationships. You know, I'm looking from an outsider in, sure. right, Jay? Right. And from what I'm seeing, it's been a really positive thing for that community in New York State to go into. And why can't we continue to do it with other communities? You know, along Long Island, there's two indigenous communities with a very limited land base, and they have been there since time immemorial. And that's one of the things that New York State could help uh, repair that relationship is by helping them acquire more ancestral lands. What about this type of history, though? Uh, how about even for you? You're 
understanding of it, how it came about for you as you, I mean, you got a couple of master's degrees, you got a, a doctorate as well. How about for you? How did this all come for you? How, at what time did you discover the doctrine of discovery? You know, uh, history is not a conspiracy. And so for me growing up, I have always been interested in anything indigenous, First Nations, uh, original peoples. And so uh, I, I, I'm a lifelong learner. And so for me, this was always there in front of my face. And so for me, uh, growing up in America, because I did grow up in a, a lot of different places where there isn't much of an indigenous presence. And being in those places, I guess I was a little self-aware where I kind of understood that uh, these things didn't happen in isolation because my traumas and the things that are triggering me in my present are part of a long line of a historical events that go all the way back to 1492. And you don't separate them by bolded subheadings in a book because you don't tease that apart. It is a continuous action that's been affecting us. And so for me, I just couldn't understand why the larger world didn't understand how this injustice uh, was continuing to happen because we do have all of these injustices, right? Because the doctrines of discovery, what they did, they did more than just uh, affect international law. They affected everything. They did, it, you know, this doctrine actually led to something else. How, who had a soul and who didn't? Who was a human being and who wasn't? Who was freed and who was enslaved? And so this doctrine has really deep and far-reaching uh, implications here that we have to address. Most certainly. It, and as you start talking about, like you said, the enslaved, those who were considered not to have souls. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 that as you're saying that, it opens up so many realities and of... And we have to think about this in the biggest, broadest strokes as possible, right? And so, like, I'm going back to the Pope. He really set us up in a third space here where we get to generate new conversations that we've never had before. So you're encouraged by the, by the Pope in Heck doing yeah, this? yeah, I am. At I the, am. At the same time, you know real politics, and you, you, hear, the, a, you hear the news like I hear the news on a daily basis, mm -hmm. is enough, are enough people going to embrace this no, to make a difference? It, it requires those who care to go out and do stumping. We have to stump. We have to talk about it. We have to create opportunities to invite people to our spaces to talk about these moments. You know, we all share the one planet. We have nowhere else to go. You know, people are hopeful about Mars or something, but <laughs> it seems to be pretty dusty and red, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm banking on Earth here, right, and right. I need to live with you, Jay, and we need to live with all of our neighbors. And the only way to do this is through peace. And so we have an opportunity, and we have to create moments where we embrace everybody and not separate but in, be inclusive, right? I'd like to think that the people who listen to this program share that sentiment. I think so. It's, a way, it's why I agreed to be on it, actually. Well, and thank you for, for agreeing to be here with us. Let's talk about, then, some stump speech points, some bullet points. Where can we go? How can we take this? Help us through this. You've thought about this. Like you said, this is a continuum. This isn't just one subheading, and maybe I'm looking for the simplification of it all. But it's a lot of thinking, mm -hmm. and it's not easy to boil it down into 
30-second sound bites. No, it's not. Uh, you know, part of it for me is uh, how do we just kind of begin rectifying some of the past wrongs? Uh, we have ongoing issues, you know, uh, health. Uh, we have mental health concerns. This is just across the board, right? Understood. Uh, I, I'm a human being, and uh, I, I just don't think about indigenous peoples. I think about everyone. You know, everything that happens to everyone kind of affects me. And uh, I don't know. You, you know, it's it's really what you want to, you know, for me to stump I'm going to stump for what I want, and that's to have uh, an equal voice in the history. I want indigenous peoples to be recognized for our contributions to humankind. I want us, I, I, I want our knowledges to be understood as sciences, because people don't realize how we lived with Mother Earth for so long, and it's based on a relationship. And it, it doesn't seem to get across. And so for me, that's the space that I want to occupy. But I know you have your own issues, and so you can use this as a moment to stump your own thing, right? Or whatever your community finds important. And so for me, you know, I think this is a great time for Buffalo to address racial concerns, right? And you can do that as a city. You can do it as a county. You can do it by your town. You can do it by your block. And so, you know, it's really not up to me to tell you how to do this. But for me, I will continue to do my, my little spaces. I occupy some tiny little bubbles, and I will keep moving in those circles trying to make the change where I need to see it. And so for me, I want to see it change in, like, historic preservation and cultural preservation. Because within those uh, legislations, they're out to care for the things that I care about and you care about, but we come about it at different angles. And legislation sometimes is a little myopic, and it comes at different time periods, and it needs to be addressed and updated to fit our current needs. Don't you hear this a lot with other things going on? <laughs> yes. Well, guess what? Cultural and historic issues need the same kind of treatment. We need to update things. We need to modernize because when we do that, we begin, we begin to appreciate all peoples as human beings with something to offer the world. That was Dr. Joel Stallman of the Seneca Nation. She's a poet, filmmaker, and an artist, but Annette Daniels-Taylor considers herself a storyteller above all else. When producing the play A Little Bit of Paradise, Annette was inspired by a tale from Buffalo's complicated past. Jay Moran sits down with Annette. You've talked a little bit about writing uh, plays and such. Are there themes that you like to touch upon, or do you just kind of go where the muse takes you at that time? I have been working a lot with historical ideas. And um, the first feature or full-length play that I had produced in Buffalo was produced at Roteless Travel Theater, and it was called A Little Bit of Paradise. I was blessed to win uh, an Artie Award for that and it, um, it was a play that talked about the history of Buffalo during 1924. Um, 
originally when I, like my first draft of the play, really dealt with what was going on with the Ku Klux Klan mm. and Mayor Schwab. And there were all of these characters. It was this this gigantic play. And, <laughs> and later on, it got sculpted down to about like five characters. And like, oh, we don't need to see the mayor. And the the Ku Klux Klan issue became an issue in the play, but it wasn't the main focus. I realized that what I wanted to really talk about in the play was the relationship between um, multi-generational black women in Buffalo. Um, segregation and isolation and how we can become family even though we're not blood. So that was, and I simply used some some historical events that were happening around that time to dress the story. And curious about the lessons that you learned from that. That that sounds like some pretty intense research you did and how it may have impacted life in Buffalo through the years and where we are today. Um, I actually started to really fall in love with Buffalo when I was writing that play. Um, when I first came to Buffalo, I was really attracted to it because it reminded me a lot of the landscape of Staten Island where I was from, where I am from. And um, so I was able to, I feel like find my place or find my space in Buffalo because I felt familiar with um, the community landscape and with, I guess, sort of the population. Um, and in my research for a little bit of Paradise, I found out about how African Americans were migrating to the city and why. And um, at first, we were migrating here um, after um, after the Civil War, and we were getting our freedom by you know uh, when the enslaved were coming here and traveling to Canada, and some of us decided we're just going to stay here because there was a small community of African Americans on the Lower East Side, and it started to grow. By the 1920s, there was another migration here, and um, and people and and at that time there was not enough housing for the amount of people that were coming from either the South and from Europe. So that made, um, that had the local government working with contractors to sort of create places for all of us to live. Um, when we first got here, we were living close with Germans and Irish. And then later on, by the time the 50s and the 60s happened, um, we were m more siloed. In my research, I discovered that there was a, um, in 1924, there was a big um, group of Ku Klux Klan members, and they had started, they had a headquarters at the, um, on Chippewa at the old Calumet building. At some point, I don't remember the exact date, the membership list was stolen from the Ku Klux Klan building on Chippewa. The Klan reported the loss, and when the membership list was stolen, someone had the bright idea, whoever stole it, 
to take the list and publicize it, they made little pamphlets of everybody's name who was on the list, who lived in Buffalo, West Seneca, Hamburg, Cheektowaga, Williamsville, all throughout the towns and cities of Western New York. They printed that list, and it was posted on the doors of City Hall. Wow. I thought that was a great story. It was a story that most people had forgotten about. Mayor Schwab at the time, Francis Schwab, took that list and decided that whoever's name was on that list, if they worked for the city, they were no longer going to work for the city. Wow. There were people who were fired. There were business owners who lost their businesses. Police officers' names were on that list. There were a couple of judges. There were some um, religious people. So there was a community shaming. It was a community shaming. People were selling the list, the list for um, for twenty five cents too. It was mixed in with like some of the newspapers. You can get the list and the newspaper. And um, some people killed themselves. There was a number of people who had um, committed suicide because they were found out. So in my play, I decided since no one had taken like had decided to, like, I stole the list. I'm the one that stole the list. No one had taken the blame. I decided that one of my characters in the play had stolen the list. It was a girl named Queenie who dressed as a boy to keep herself and her brother, her sister, excuse me, it was two sisters, and they stole the list. And they stole the list because they were trying to get out of the cold. So they broke into the building, and they saw the the metal box, they thought the metal box was money. They left, the police were after them, and one of the police officers who was after them was one of the people who was a member of the Klan. So in the story, that doesn't happen in the play, this is like pre, you know, the story that she tells someone in the play, like we were running and then, you know, her, bro- her sister gets shot, and they were both disguised as boys to keep themselves safe. So when she enters the play, she's trying to get some food, and she's you know, trying to speak to the person, um, Bessie, who is the housekeeper, and Bessie lets her in and feeds her and then discovers that she's a girl dressed as a boy. So this play was written, you know, it was produced in 2009, and I wasn't really thinking about gender issues at the time. I was thinking about the way many enslaved people ran away and disguised themselves as men or women to keep themselves safe. So I was thinking, you know, this is in the 20s, and these, in, in my mind, these girls traveled from the South, and they were girls traveling on the rails or traveling on the road, and girls need to keep themselves safe. So Bessie, who feeds them, is in her late 50s, and she works for a woman who appears to be white. She is married to a black man. She is a black woman, but when people see her, they see, some people see her as a white woman. In the play, she has these conversations with her husband where she says, why, I do not want to play the who's, who's more Negro game. <laughs> and she's like, and basically she says, I was born a black woman. 
if people out in the world are blind to that, that's their business. It's not mine. I don't have to go around with a sign on my back that says I'm black. And if you can't see that I'm black, that's not my fault. If someone sees me and thinks that I'm white, I don't have to prove that to anyone. So those are the conversations that come up in the play. Do I have to tell people I'm black? And Bessie looks black. Um, the little girl, Queenie, looks black. Um, the husband, he looks black. But our main character, Louisa, looks white. And so those were the questions that I was talking about, like our appearance and what that means. It's, you know, what is it, the the quality of a person as opposed to the way they look? You know, we're looking at character here. We look back to to Mayor Schwab, and I'm I'm pleased that you you told me that that backstory because I didn't know that, and he's now a new hero. But <laughs> uh, but that type of community shaming would we see that today? Oh, that's a that's interesting. Well, I we do see that, don't we? I mean, we see it on social media. Sure, but I, you know, this was this. That sounds almost like it was an org. I mean, granted, it was led by was, the mayor to a certain extent, but it had an almost an organic kind of a feel to it. And it had a an anonymous, you know, there was either an anonymous individual or an anonymous group that said, "We're breaking into this building, we're stealing this list, and we're going to let everybody know who's a part of the clan and where they live," because the list had their names and their addresses. Hmm. So every and I also I feel like in 1924 we didn't have as many outlets to find information quickly. You know, we we had a lot of different newspapers at the time. We had the Irish, we had a Catholic, we had you know Africa. I'm sure there was. I'm not completely sure, but I'm going to say there was probably an African American newspaper. Certainly. There was probably a Greek newspaper and an Italian and a Polish. So there was. There were ways for us, for different siloed um, communities to get information. I think as communities, we tend to always think that our community is amazing. We want to be proud to be African-American. We want to be proud to be Jamaican. We want to be proud to be Greek and Italian, proud to be the I Irish. We want to be proud of, our, of where we're from. And when you have those kinds of blemishes put on your community, it we're saddened, we're ashamed. You know, black people have been, in, in America, we've often, I know in, in my part of black people in America, from where I come from, I've always heard, oh my goodness, isn't that, it's just too bad that they were black that they did that. Like, we're, we're always, like, we're hearing the news and we're waiting, oh, please don't let them say mm. that that person was black. Don't let that person be black. You know, and and as I got older, I used to think, that is, I, I don't like that. You know, white folks, y'all don't have that. <laughs> y'all not, not listening to the radio or watching TV saying, oh, please don't let them be white. You might be saying, oh, please don't let them be Italian. Oh, please don't let them be Polish. Oh, please don't let them be Irish. But we can't look at you and see your nationality. We look at you and we see they're white. You look at us and you say they're black, but you know, a black person in this country, in this state, may be from Jamaica, may be from Nigeria, might be from Ghana, may be from Colombia, may be from Mexico, and they may not have a connection to the ins legal enslavement that happened in this country. 
you don't know. But we put us all in one lump, in one lump, and 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 then the people who aren't black, we feel look at us and say, oh, look at those black folks, hmm. look at them hanging out on the corner, look, oh, I bet they didn't even finish their education because of how we're dressed. You know, just just because someone's wearing um, sneakers and an athletic jersey doesn't mean they have they don't have their doctorate. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they don't own their own business. It doesn't mean that they're not successful in what they do. That's simply the uniform they decided to wear today. I don't know what they're wearing tomorrow at 9 o'clock, but we make assumptions because we feel like, you know, we need to put together the puzzle in our head about who someone is. Um, we just need to talk to each other. That's how we put together the puzzle if you want to know who somebody is, you start talking to them. I'm going to get a great answer here. So I'm going to ask you this question. We've asked <laughs> a lot of a lot of folks who come in for this program. What does Buffalo need? That's a pretty broad question. It is, um, but you know that's why we like writers. Writers <laughs> know how to take it into new, into interesting directions. Um, Buffalo. I feel like Buffalo really needs to remember who Buffalo is. Someone like me who comes to Buffalo and I say, oh my goodness, this city is so amazing. Look at all this incredible architecture. Look at all of these different nationalities. Look at all these different restaurants. Look at this rich history. The history of this city is incredible. And whenever I work on a project, I work and research the history of this city. There have been so many amazing accomplishments socially, technolo technologically, academically from this city. It may come from the fact that we spend so much time indoors because it's so cold, hmm. so we're able to think and dream and make up things. But my feeling is a lot of people in Buffalo would benefit from going to either the internet and researching the history of their particular communities or just picking up some books and researching Buffalo. This town is rich with history. The Niagara Movement, the Underground Railroad. I mean, we talked about Mayor Schwab and him like helping get rid of the Klan. The Klan never came back to Buffalo. I mean, I, as far as I know, there there may be some members of the Ku Klux Klan here now, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just 1924. Right. Then the 30s happened, and then the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I mean, we were one of the few cities that didn't have race riots, and we, you know, in the 60s there was a, a riot of some kind here. I, I wrote a play called 1967 that talks about that riot, but... You know, we have overcome so many kinds of obstacles in this particular city based on the fact that I feel we can talk to each other. Um, and I feel shows like this, which allow everyday people and the exceptionals and the artists and the scholars and the religious You've, you've had so many different kinds of people on this show talking about what's next for Buffalo. I feel what's next for Buffalo is based on what's happened in the past, 
with Buffalo. And the people who live in Buffalo, if they can help remember and research why Buffalo is great, I think that'll continue the greatness. You know, Johanna said, we need to tell people, um, we need to tell people outside of Buffalo how great it is. We have people who, you know, I have friends just like her who live in a particular city and are unhappy. Buffalo could make them happy. I don't know, it could. But I think the people that are already here, when I came here, I was unhappy because of the weather and I didn't have my friends and I was searching for community. I realized that I needed to figure out what this town was about. And I think the people who are born and raised here, some of you remember the greatness of this city. And I, it's, it's here. We just have to dig a little and stop thinking about what the city doesn't have. Think about what the city does have. It has great people and people who care about themselves and care about one another. And isn't that, that's all that makes a city great is the people. So that's what Buffalo needs. It needs to remember how great it is. That was Annette Daniels-Taylor. On the day of the Tops May 14th shooting, the local community lost the charitable soul of Pearl Young. Her son, Damon Young, and longtime friend and fellow parishioner Madge Whiskey hoped to keep her spirit of goodwill going by establishing a soup kitchen and food pantry in Pearl's name. Angelie Preston had an opportunity to sit with Damon and Madge to speak about this indelible pillar of the community. Madge, I want to start with you first. You took over uh, Mrs. Pearl's duties at the church. Can you explain what she did at the church? Okay, I met Mrs. Pearl. It's ironical. So let me give a little introduction to the first time I saw her. I came out of the train station at the corner of Humboldt and Main Street. And I was walking on the viaduct to get over to Kensington. And there was this lady standing with a sign that said, stop. So I stopped. And then I said, what's with the sign? She says, well, when anyone sees the sign and stop, I take that opportunity to tell them about Christ. And then she looked at me and say, I don't think I need to tell you, you look like a Christian. So I said, I sure am. I said, but this is a unique way of evangelizing. So she will stand at that corner with that stop sign that says stop. And she used that as a, a tool to introduce people to Christ. Little did I know that a few years later, both of us would be members at the same church. How long ago was that? This mm. was almost 30 years ago. Wow. I was with Kojic, and then I decided to go over to Bishop's church, Bishop Young's church on Leroy, walk into the church and saw this. I said, that's a woman with a stop sign. So from then, you know, we connected. She was over what is called our missionary board. That's where all the women who are missionary, she was over us. Sister Pearl was a go-getter. She was a ball of fire. <laughs> she was the missionary president. She was the Sunday school teacher. She was the soup maker. She was everything. She did everything in the church. And, you know, we connected. Um, we started to work together in ministry. It's tragic what has happened, 
because it has affected our church. She was not just a member of Good Samaritan. Her late husband was the assistant pastor of Good Samaritan. And that's your father, right? And Damon? that's, yes. yes, Damon's father. And he also was the brother of the present bishop, Glenwood H. Young. So it's not that she was, and I, I'm saying this very cautiously, just a member, but she was one of the founding members of Good Samaritan Church. And she taught Sunday school to the children, right? Yes, she did. How was it navigating? Um, how did the children feel? Sister Pearl, let me break it down this way. In Sunday school, there are different age groups and classes. So you have the little ones, you have the beginners, you have primary, you have preteen, teen, adults. So you may have a category of five different classes with five different teaching manuals. Sister Pearl will study every lesson for every age group. So when she comes into Sunday school, she's normally with the little ones. But if something happened and the teens are there and they don't have a teacher, she knew what their lesson was because she already studied it. So she can go teach them. And she not only taught Sunday school, she was also the soup maker. So a lot of the children like going to the Sunday school because they know she will have soup for them <laughs> after Sunday school. <laughs> so that's where the idea of the food pantry and soup kitchen came from because she just loved making soup and giving it out to the children. Damon, do you remember your, like when you were growing up with your mom, do you like remember her being involved in church? Like Absolutely. Oh yeah, that's Yes, and she would ta tag me along with her to be involved as well um, when I was younger. So I do remember it, and I just, um, like Sister Whiskey said, I don't really see, I didn't never really see a change in her energy is what I can say for the church. Um, she just always wanted to be doing something um, with the kids. She uh, always, like, brought them breakfast stuff uh before Sunday school and I remember seeing one of the younger kids whose grandmother um, is one of my friend's grandmother so this is this young boy's great-grandmother and I come to church for Mother's Day and got up and spoke about my mom and then I saw the young boy the next day he was like I didn't know that Mama Pearl was your mom and I'm like yeah man I, you know that's my mom she gave me honey buns all the time <laughs> and you know but it was like that you know it was the relation like that you know we come in we come into Sunday school we're going to be taught fed nurtured and that's just you know really what my mom was to me and even continue to be this would be the most powerful female voice for me that I would listen to. I have to, it's a hundred percent certain. So, um, you know, I miss her presence. I miss her guidance. Still, I would listen to my mom go to for her advice. It sounds like mm -hmm. she was a mother to the community. Mm -hmm. So what, um, cause you mentioned that she cooked, she liked cook soup. Um, was there like a dish or something that like you loved that like she always made sure that you had? Like what was what was something that your mom cooked that nobody else could make? Well, I, this was me and her dish was the ambrosia. Oh. The ambrosia salad? <laughs> yes, like I love ambrosia. Oh I love my it. god. It's just I could eat it for days and to me it get better after it sit actually for a day, a day or two. So I, that was me and her favorite dish and um we've 
brought some at tops. It's been other times people have made some, and I mean, we just both used to just sit down and like critique it. And well, you know, it's not like how mine it. So that's one. That's will be my favorite dish that she made. That I just don't think nobody else can make it. <laughs> and if I could piggyback on that, what um, Damon said, that was the dish she brought to every cook up. We have a church. So just and know that everybody mm-hmm. will be sister Mother Pearl Pearl Ambrosia. <laughs> she gonna bring that ambrosia mm-hmm. salad. Yes, yes. <laughs> I wanna talk about um your mom's community service because she's been doing this. She's she was in the in, in the community for years, uh, with her soup kitchen, um and, and feeding people. Um, can you both talk uh more about that? Uh, Damon, we'll start with you. Well, I just Clearly, I just remember my mom from, was it Dewey Street? Did it start Leroy and then go to Dewey, or was it Dewey Street first? I just, my mom was just always volunteering at the, at the, uh, the church pantry, is what it was, the Good Samaritan Pantry. And she just always volunteered there, and they fed the community and brought things to the community um, on a weekly basis. I got to Good Samaritan. <laughs> it was already in operation. She has been part of that pantry every Saturday morning. And if I can just go back a little mm-hmm. to bring um, his dad in, Elder Oliver. Bishop, he's still saying up to today, how long has your father passed away? 2013, I believe. In 2013. And up to today, Bishop Young still misses his father because of the fact Elder Oliver which was Sister Pearl's husband, was everything at Good Samaritan. He will go shovel the snow, open the door, do the prayer service. So what happened? God brought two people together that meshed with their commitment, first of all, to Christ and their commitment to their church. So Sister Pearl worked neck and neck with her husband. So every Saturday, she would be at that food pantry she made sure she prayed first. When the people come in, she used the opportunity to tell them about Jesus before they could get their box of food. She would say, let me tell you something about Jesus. And then she would give the, and she has, she did that ever since I said, I'm in Good Samaritan about 30 years now. And I met her doing that every Saturday morning. As Damon said, and I alluded to earlier, um, she made sure the kids at the church was fed. Um, she was my three son, grandsons rather, Sunday school teacher. And when they asked the children at the church when the tragedy happened, what you miss m- most about Mother Pearl, they said, we miss her feeding us mm-hmm. <laughs> in church. You know, so she has impacted the lives of every one of us at Good Samaritan and beyond. If you could have had other people come in here, you would have heard... Um, the testimony of her traveling across America doing evangelism work. Right now we are at, this is one of our sad points at Good Samaritan because every year for the Easter service, she would do the crucifixion as a monologue by herself every year. So Bishop didn't even have to ask. She said, I'm ready. And she will go up there and recite that whole crucifixion. And I remember one year, my grandson was on the drums. And she liked when it, when it reached the path. 
and they nailed him to the cross. She liked them to rattle the drum, da, 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 da. and he wasn't doing it. And she said, "Do it, do it, do it, do it," <laughs> you know. And then, you know, so she's pounding the nails in, and she wants the drum to be going, da, 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 da. nail them to the cross. So we are gonna miss that because that has been gone from our church. That's something we look. It's if you wanna call it a tradition, but it was a good tradition. Everybody, Sister Pearl is gonna do the crucifixion. Every one of us at Good Samaritan is still affected. As Damon says, um, I cannot comprehend what he's going through, what Pam is going through, what James is going through. And the thing about it is that the, the three of them, I had connections with them. I had connections with James. He happened to be my grandson's coach, track coach. So they travel all over America with James. I had connection with Pam because she herself is an evangelist missionary and she grew up in the same church that I came with with her mother. But um, Pearl and, and Gloria, which is her sister-in-law, they were very close. They did almost everything together. Every Sunday they went out to dinner after church, you know. And um, that same Saturday, there was a prayer breakfast and they both went to the poor breakfast. And they said it was so heartwarming to see. Pearl Young is in a poor breakfast, getting up and praising God and doing her spiritual dance in the poor breakfast. And then the week prior to that, we had our workers meeting. And two things were significant, and Bishop always speak about it. Each of us, whether we like to or not, we have our little special seat in church. So she has her little special seat that she sat. I sit two rows behind her. But for that workers' meeting, the jurisdictional workers' meeting, she was on the other side of the church. And they say every night of that service, she was up in that service just praising God and dancing. And they say people were looking. Some people taped her. They say, we know Sister Pearl like to shout and dance, but it's something this week. She is shouting every night. And then come the Saturday at the prayer breakfast. It carried over. When they left the prayer breakfast, she told her sister-in-law, Gloria, I need to go buy tops. So she said, I normally go buy the tops on Main, but since you are coming up Jefferson, drop me at the one on Jefferson. So Gloria said to her, you know, I'm tired. So what you want to do? Me wait. Well, she said, no, you go on home because you're tired. So I could either take the Jefferson bus because it's on my route, or I could take a nice walk, right? I want the public to understand. Damon said it. And even though I'm a Christian and I'm a minister, there are some things I still don't understand. That day at that Jefferson Tops, there was Gloria, who is Pearl's sister-in-law, in the car. There was another member of Good Samaritan who Sister Pearl stood up and talked to in the tops. So Gloria left, Sister Makar left, but Pearl was shot. Do I understand why? No. Maybe after wait till I get to heaven for God to explain that one to me. But one thing that I'm sure about, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know she made it to heaven. 
and because I knew her lifestyle, and it's as though God was giving us that last vision of her, Sister Pearl, you know, and she had a favorite scripture verse. She said that almost every time she get up before she finished, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Every time Sister Pearl get up, she has to quote that scripture. I just quote, spoke a couple of weeks ago at our church, and I had to quote the scripture in memory of Sister Pearl because it has affected us so much. As I said, my seat, I sit like two rows behind where she sat, and I keep looking at that spot, and I'm saying, are you really gone? But one day I'm going to see you walking up here, and somebody say, oh, it was a hoax. But she is gone. She is missed. And there's not a day that has gone by, not a service that has gone by. Sometimes, sometimes our service is high, and everybody's praising God in church, and somebody will go, oh, if Sister Pearl was here, if Mother Pearl was here, she's missed. You know, um, we have a hope as believers that we are going to see her again. And as I told someone, if we could get to talk to Sister Pearl right now, as much as Damon is missing and hurting, and James is missing and hurting, and Pamela is missing and hurting, and her grandchildren, and her church, and you say, um, Pearl, you want to come back? She going to look at us and say, are you all crazy? I'm in heaven with Jesus. I ain't coming back down in that filthy world. You know, you all need to come and be where I am. You know, and that's what gives us the, the confidence, the comfort, the assurance to know it was an evil deed, but God is still in control. And even as Damon says, he don't understand. I don't understand either. But we know somewhere in this whole scenario, God allowed it to happen for a purpose. You know, Pearl is missed. That woman with a stop sign. <laughs> with her ambrosia salad. At the ambrosia salad. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> What do you want uh, people to remember your mother? Like, what do you want her legacy to be? I would want her legacy to be about how um, unashamedly she was concerned with the community, other people, children. Um, spreading God's word is what I would say, um, even to me. At all times, okay. <laughs> so look, I'm, this, the stop sign, I'm part of the stop sign as well, being her son constant, okay. So, so I, I'm, I can, you know, attest for sure that I wanted to be known that she she loved Jesus, she loved giving, she loved being of assist of assistance to others, and participating in God's work is what I would say I would want people to know the most about her. And that she just loved her family, and you know, I struggle, like like um, Sister Whiskey said, I, I struggle all the time with it. But um, because of the way I grew up, I have to believe that she's in a way better place, um, and I do believe that. And I just don't like the way she went. Okay, if that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. It makes perfect um, sense. Uh, she used to tell me a lot, and I, I, you know, it's almost like that's a. It's almost like she was being prophetic. She said, "You know, if I poop out one day, Damon, you know, just take care of this or do that." And I'm like, you know, and I, I used to tell her um, 
a lot. I'm like, Mom, you know, don't talk about that. Mm. And the reason um, I said that is because by her energy level, I'm like, you're not oh about God. to go nowhere, okay? <laughs> Look, I, I know energy people when I see them. And I just, you're just moving around way too much, Mom. Just calm down. And so, you know, sometimes I almost feel like she was just having some visions or, I mean, something in her in her own time, like her own, you know, to just continue down that. She used to call it petering out um, a form of death, like somehow. But um, I just didn't never suspect that, um, you know, I was the one supposed to pick my mom up from Tops that day. Hmm. So this goes from um, a call from her to I don't know if she finished the shopping and stepped outside to call me and you know I just was never never even able to get through that that it was just over like and and from that you know I was the first family member to be notified and so once she wasn't answering the phone my antennas was automatically up but I was at least maybe hoping she was just maybe injured possibly um I've met people that um at the court cases that just got injured and you know, though even those are life altering permanently. Um, the manager that got shot and he's not black. So just to put a full perspective on this and I mean his whole knee is tore up, like from here down, it's all metal now. Mm. And, you know, yeah, he gave him a pass after, but I mean, still he's still never gonna walk again, never gonna play with his kids and run up and down a basketball court, jog. So, you know, everybody got affected that day and I just hope for that the city can like heal itself what Damon didn't tell you she had three children James Pam Damon right but their house was always filled with children because their mother decided to be a foster parent oh your mom was a foster parent <laughs> so you think about this think about this woman energy I mean, her okay. energy was oh astronomical, <laughs> you know. So sometimes we are sitting in church, and we see her walking, and sister put, oh, that's a foster child. But but it's just respite. It's just respite. Now, respite is supposed to be over the weekend, right, mm -hmm. or overnight. Next week is still respite. And the next week is still respite. So she's and, keeping them <laughs> beyond what? So she, church, community, home, School, foster mother, having them living in her home, taking care of them in her home. And some of them are, were challenging, you know, but she did it. So this can give you a broader perspective of who Pearl Young was. The person who was taken away from her children and her grandchildren and her church and her community. There was a woman who came to one of the, the gatherings and she said that um, I accepted Christ as my Savior because Pearl and Oliver and Pearl Young came out of their house on Glen, Glendale. Glendale, invited me into their house, and led me to Christ. Mm. So even on her street, they were ministering. She would tell me she would sit on the porch because as Damon said, they live close to Canisius. And she will sit on the porch and hire out to the Canisius students. And sometimes <laughs> some will come over and talk to her. That gave her an opportunity, you know, to, to minister to them. So it was not just a wife and a mother. It was somebody who 
made her presence felt everywhere she go. You will know Sister Pearl is here. She's around, you know. And because of this, because of her legacy, because of what she has imparted to her children, as I said, it's, it's children that I have known, that I've interacted with. We don't want her name to be forgotten. We just don't want her to be called one of the Jefferson Ten. Mm -hmm. She is more than a Jefferson Ten. She is Pearl Young, this woman who has impacted so many people. A sincere thank you to Damon Young and Madge Whiskey for sharing their memories and sentiments about Miss Pearl Young. A reminder that the Pearl Young Soup Kitchen and Food Pantry event will be held Saturday, April 29th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 266 Leroy Avenue. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday at 10 a.m., with a rebroadcast at 9 p.m. Each episode of Buffalo What's Next can be found online as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, or on the Amplify BTPM app, as well as on WBFO.org. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>